0: Got it. That's right. There we go. We're good. All right. <laughs> <laughs> we got it there. All right. Thank you very much. Well, we're just grateful again for the opportunity to be with you today and to look again at the word of God. And I would just ask you to open your Bibles this morning to Philippians chapter 1. Philippians chapter 1. It's always a great thing to be with the people of God. It's a great opportunity to preach and study the word of God. It's a great opportunity to behold what Christ is doing in his church throughout the world. And also what he's doing in his church local. Here at Grace Bible Church. I've known Brian for 10, 12 years, 10, 11 years or so. He's a great friend, a dear brother. It's it's great just to kind of track and see what's going on with the ministry here. And from time to time to be a part of it. We're very (laughs) thankful for that opportunity. It's a precious work that uh, Jesus Christ is doing here. And as Brian asked me to preach, you know, I just naturally thought of what I thought might be an appropriate passage, especially in light of what you've been studying. You've been going through the book of Acts. He's updated me on that. And I also wanted to kind of just... Tie in to what you've been studying and blend it in with the Thanksgiving theme. Thanksgiving, of course, is this week, so just trying to kind of pull all those things together. What you've studied, Thanksgiving. I thought a very appropriate passage today to look at would be Philippians chapter one, verse six. So open your Bibles there and read with me as I read this verse. For I am confident of this very thing, that he who began a good work in effect it until the day of Christ Jesus. Now what is the work or what is the book of Acts all about? The book of Acts is all about Jesus Christ building his church. That's what it's all about, isn't it? And that's something to be thankful for, isn't it? It's something to be thankful for because Jesus said, "The gates of hell will not prevail against his church." That's Matthew chapter 16, verse 18. That's especially comforting for me this year, and hopefully for you as well. Let's just stop and think about that. It's comforting because it goes without saying how much we've seen our own society become more and more hostile towards Christianity over this past year. And from everything that we see, it's only going to get worse. And we're not used to that. And it can provoke in us An anxiety and a fear. What kind of a world are our kids and grandkids going to live in? What's the church going to look like for them? We can understand the concerns that people have because of things that they've seen within our society in these last 12 months. We can also be concerned because of things that we're seeing on the outside. We see radical Islam annihilating Christians wherever they can and we're not only concerned for them but also for ourselves. What is going to happen if that ever hits our own shores? We're concerned about that. And that's why it is so comforting to understand what we see here in this verse. God is going to finish what he has decreed in eternity past. His eternal counsels will stand. He's finished what he has begun. And that includes the church. And it also includes finishing what he has begun in you, if you know Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior. In other words, he's going to finish what he has begun, both in the whole and in the part. We're going to take a look at that today. And if that isn't a good reason for giving thanks, I don't know what is. That's why I like seeing what we're going to see here in this passage. I would title this message, Faithful unto the End, as God is going to be faithful to finish what he has begun. And just to kind of drive that point home, let's look at this verse again, verse 6. For I'm confident of this very thing, that he who began a good work in you will perfect it until the day of Christ Jesus. Now, one of the things that... I want to kind of look at three aspects of Paul's confidence. Why was Paul so confident in the work that Christ was going to do? Well, there's three things I kind of want to examine in light of that. And the, the same things that we're going to see here, I, I think can be comforting to all of us. Because I think we can all identify with the circumstances here that, uh, that uh, birthed the church at uh, Philippi. Uh, and to understand this, like I said, we're going to be looking at three a- aspects of Paul's confidence in God's promise to finish the work that he began here. Let's go ahead and start by looking at their beginning. I'm going to settle this looking at Paul's confidence in light of their past. And by that I refer to their beginning. Paul's confidence in light of their past, meaning their beginning. Turn with me to Acts chapter 16. Acts chapter 16. Now it really is an amazing thing to understand what the confidence that Paul had in God's ability to finish this work when you understand the humble origins of this church. This church was born during Paul's second missionary journey. And it witnessed his first proclamation of the gospel in Europe. Uh, You haven't studied Acts 16 yet as a church. You're going to come to it. But when you do, you'll notice that Paul is traveling through Asia Minor. And he comes to a city on the coast named Troas. We see that in verse 8. And notice what we, we see after that in verses 9 and 10. A vision appeared to Paul in the night. A man of Macedonia was standing and appealing to him. And saying, come over to Macedonia and help us. When he had seen the vision, immediately we sought to go into Macedonia, concluding that God had called us to preach the gospel to them. This is Paul's famous Macedonian call, his vision there, which includes much of modern-day Greece. And so they decide to set sail from Troas, as we begin uh, seeing in verse 11. So putting out to sea from Troas, we ran a straight course to Samothrace, and on the the day following to Neapolis, and from there to Philippi which is a leading city of the district of Macedonia, a Roman colony. And we were staying in this city for some days. Now at this point, Paul and Silas have added Luke and Timothy to their travels. I think that includes the we that we're talking about here. And you'll notice that as they cross from Troas to Apollo, if you have a map, you're passing, from, you're passing through the Aegean Sea, but more importantly, you're crossing from Asia over to Europe. This is the first time that the gospel has been proclaimed in Europe and that's what we see in verse 13. And on the Sabbath day we went outside the gate to the riverside where we were supposing that we would uh, we were supposing that there would be a place of prayer. And we sat down and began speaking to the women who had assembled. Now this statement gives us a further insight into the religious makeup of Philippi. It tells us that Philippi had a small Jewish population. How do we know that? Well, Paul's practice was to go preach Christ at a synagogue whenever he had that opportunity. But to have a synagogue, you had to have at least ten Jewish men. The fact that there is no synagogue in Philippi suggests that it has a very small Jewish population. That shouldn't surprise us. It's a Gentile city. It's a proud Roman city with a diversity of pagan religions. And the few who would identify with Jerusalem would meet here at the river for a time of prayer. And this included in the group, or this uh, this group included a woman that we see in verses 14 and 15. A woman named Lydia from the city of Thyatira, a seller of purple fabrics, a worshiper of God, was listening. And the Lord opened her heart to respond to the things spoken by Paul. And when she and her household had been baptized, she urged us, saying, If you have judged me to be faithful to the Lord, come into my house and stay. And she prevailed upon us. Now this woman, Lydia, was actually a Gentile. The fact that she is called a worshiper of God tells us that she was probably a Gentile who came to realize that the God of Israel was a true God, an Old Testament convert in that sense. The fact that she was a seller of purple tells us that she was probably a wealthy woman as purple was a product used by the rich. That's how this church began in Philippi. It begins with the belief of a single woman and her household. In a few verses, we will see that it expands to include the jailer and his household. And aside from that, we don't read of any more believers at this point. Shortly after that, Paul and Silas are run out of town. So what's the point? The point is simply this. This is a church with a very humble beginning. This is a church with a very humble beginning. Think about it. Did he have 3,000 converts to begin a church with like they did on the day of Pentecost? No. No. Did he have a church training center and church planting center like at Ephesus where he spent three years? No. Did he even spend three weeks or three Sabbaths like he did in Thessalonica? No. In fact, as you kind of read this text, the whole chapter, you kind of get the impression that Paul barely had three days in this city before he was run out of town. He didn't have much to work with. Did he have any Jewish men from an Old Testament background that he could build upon? No. He had two households, Gentile households. Didn't have much of a context or much of an understanding about the Word of God. The point is simply this. What kind of a foundation is that for a church plant? That would fail everybody's model. And the thing that I am comforted by in this is that Paul is starting here. This church begins. From a very humble origin. Now. Let me ask you this. Stop and think about your own life. Some of you came from believing homes. And that's great. Others of you did not. My wife and I. Are first generation believers. We've seen those humble origins. And they're precious to God. This church didn't start with you know, a huge outlay of people. It's just a small group. God's doing a precious work here. The thing that I just want to encourage you is sometimes when we look at a small and weak origin, we get discouraged from a human perspective. It doesn't have the strength, the dynamics to make it really thrive from man's perspective. We can get discouraged by that. But God began and finished the work here in the Church of Philippi as he promised. Just like he's going to do here. Just like he's going to do with you. If you know Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior. That's something to be thankful for, folks. Doesn't matter what you've experienced, the hardships you've, you've, you, you've encountered, the obstacles along the way, the failure, the sin, or whatever. He is committed to finish what he has begun in you. That is Paul's confidence in light of their past. Let's look at his confidence in light of their present. Turn back to Philippians chapter 1. The Church of Philippi faced a lot of challenges as this letter reveals. They had their internal problems with unity, with harmony. And they had their external problems such as opposition. And that is what we're going to focus on here. Paul's confidence in light of the opposition that they faced. That is their present circumstance. Notice that as we begin reading here in verse 27. Only conduct yourselves in a manner worthy of the gospel of Christ. So that whether I come and see you or remain absent, I will hear of you that you are standing firm in one spirit, with one mind, striving together for the faith of the gospel, in no way alarmed by your opponents, which is a sign of destruction for them, but of salvation for you. For to you it has been granted, for Christ's sake, not only to believe in him, but also to suffer for his sake, experiencing the same conflict which you saw in me and now here to be in me. Now, when you preach Christ, one of the things that is certain is that there will be opposition. Jesus said in Matthew 10, 16, I send you out a sheep in the midst of wolves. What does a sheep have to do to get the wolf's attention? (coughs) Nothing. It's just instinct that the wolf is going to come after the sheep. And when you proclaim Christ, it's going to be instinct that the devil is going to come after you. Paul knew that opposition. The church at Philippi, knew that opposition as well. You may know it in your own lives. The point is, is that when we encounter, and it's very easy to think that things may be falling apart. It's very easy to think, God, what is happening? What's going on? Is this all going to collapse? You know, the carnal mind can think some pretty bizarre thoughts amidst tribulation, can't it? can panic. might even be tempted to quit. What is Paul saying here in light of this? He's simply saying this. Don't be alarmed when tribulation hits. Don't think that somehow it's all coming apart. On the contrary. It is only the testimony that God is at work. God is at work because you are facing opposition. And if that's the case, if God is working, he is going to finish what he has begun. He is going to finish what he has begun amidst the most wicked plans of men and the devil. They will not thwart the work of God. Instead, they will work to actually accomplish it. After all, what did Joseph say to his brothers years after they sold him into slavery? Genesis chapter 50, verse 20. You meant evil against me, but God meant it for good. He didn't. And maybe you're facing opposition in your own life. As a believer. From family members. From, from friends. From co-workers. Who knows what you're facing? You might be facing. It might be that you're facing some kind of a struggle. Something that goes beyond family, friends, or people. Who knows? I don't know. But God does. You, know, you might be tempted to think. Man, what's going to happen? I'm just going to say. God's going to finish what he has begun. And, and when I think of the opposition that men level against the gospel. I, I love to think of this quote by Jonathan Edwards. This is in his famous sermon, Sinners in the Hands of an Angry God. Listen to what he says. There is no fortress that is any defense from the of God. Though hand join in hand and vast multitudes of God's enemies combine and associate themselves, they are easily broken in pieces. They are as great heaps of light chaff before the whirlwind or large quantities of dry stubble before devouring flames. Isn't that awesome? Men who seek to attack God, who seek to thwart his work, are like stubble attacking a fire. I love it. Fire lane gets bigger, doesn't it? You know, you can always face just about anything that you're going through as long as you know you're going to win. Can't you? When the heat's on and the battle is fierce, Knowing that no matter what happens, side is a great motivator to keep pressing on, isn't it? No wonder Paul had the confidence that he did in God's ability to finish what he began in this church. Their past, their feeble beginning, didn't thwart his confidence. Neither did the fierce battle that they were going through, their present circumstance. And just to give you just how strong Paul's confidence was. Look at verse 6 again. Philippians chapter 1 verse 6. And in particular look at the beginning of it. For I am confident of this very thing. Just stop right there. Do you see the word confidence? Now, some of your Bibles may have a different translation. But it's, you get the idea. In the Greek this is in the perfect tense. Now what does that mean? What does that mean? Well we really don't have an equivalent for that in English. But in the Greek language, when the perfect tense was used, it spoke of a past action. It had abiding results that endured to the very present moment. It emphasizes permanence. In other words, if I simply wanted to state that Cassie and I were married on June 15, 1991, if I simply wanted to state that as a fact, I might use what is called the Greek aorist tense. It simply denotes a fact in time past. But if I wanted to emphasize the fact that we were married on that day and remain married to the present moment, I would use the Greek perfect tense. It emphasizes permanence. When Paul says this in Ephesians 2.8, for by grace you have been saved, what tense does he use? He uses the perfect tense. You were saved at a point in time past. The results of which to abide to the present moment. And guess what? The results of which will endure forever. When Jesus said on the cross, it is finished. It's a single Greek word in John 19 verse 30. The Greek word, tetelestai. And guess what tense that is? The perfect tense. It was finished at a point in time past. The results of which abide to the present moment. The results of which will never end. I am confident perfect tense God's going to finish what he began now you can't get a greater confidence than that and I believe that God gave Paul this confidence as soon as this church was born it's a confidence that Paul had at the beginning it's a confidence that he had here at the present and it's a confidence that he continued to have nothing's going to deter it Now, not only was this confidence broad, it was also deep. It was deep enough to apply to every single believer in this church. Look for a moment at the word you. I'm confident that he who began a good work in you. In the Greek, this is plural, not singular. It speaks of them collectively, which is why this is a reference to the church. Now, can I throw a little Texan in this for a minute? You think if Paul was writing to the church here. He might write it this way. uh, That he who began a good work in y'all. Is going to complete it to the day of Christ. I think so. I think so. Does that help drive home the point? I hope it does. That's the church collectively. What about the church individually? What about the believer individually rather? Does it apply any less to us as individual believers? It has to. Why? Why? Because if God's going to finish the work in the whole, He's also got to finish it in the part. Right? Who builds a house with unfinished bricks? Much of a house if that happens, are you? God must finish in the part what he has begun in the whole. That's why even though this verse speaks to the church, collectively it speaks to each of us individually. God is going to finish in you what he has begun. Now what is that? I I want to take a, a moment just to maybe go off on a rabbit trail. I'm letting you know in advance. But I want to talk for a moment. What is the work that God has begun in the lives of each of his children? What is that work that he is going to finish? It is nothing less than this. It is nothing less than the believer's glorification. I, I, want, that, I want you to dwell on that. I, I want that to-, to sink into your hearts and-, and to become precious. God is committed to your glorification if you know Jesus as your Lord and Savior. Now, we look all around us. We look at the world. We look at athletes. We look at celebrities, actors, actresses, and all that. And we see the world's glory And we can be tempted to think, who am I? I'm just simply going to tell you this. There is nothing that the world offers that is going to compare with God's glorification of his children. Nothing. And what is that going to look like? You hear the, you, you, we hear this, people talk about that. What does that look like? This is where I'm, I just want to kind of go off on, and, and just explain this or, or talk about this for a moment. But what is the believer's glorification? It is simply this. It is a glorification that is much greater than if sin had never entered the human race. That's a staggering thought. But the, belief, the, the glory that you and I will share in as glorified saints is greater than if sin had never entered the human race. How can that be? Let's just stop and think about what that involves. If, if Adam had never sinned, what would he be? He would be the perfect image of God. He would be the perfect image of God. Now, we're all, every single human being who's ever lived, is created in the image of God, aren't we? Doesn't matter what color your skin is, black, white, red, yellow, brown, equally created in the image of God. Doesn't matter where you live, America, Europe, Africa, Asia, wherever. Doesn't matter if you're an urbanite or you live in a remote jungle, you are all equally created in the image of God. But what's the problem? The problem is sin. The problem is that image is marred, it is tarnished, it is defected. When we are saved and fully redeemed with glorified bodies, that image is going to be perfectly restored. We will once again reclaim the perfection of the image of God like Adam had before his fall. And that's a wonderful thought. Because we've never known anything but a fallen image, right? Now, that's a great thought, but folks, this is what's even more important. That's not all. Not only will we have the reclaimed perfect image of God, but added to that, we are going to be conformed into the image of who? Christ himself. Romans eight twenty nine, whom he foreknew, he predestined to be conformed to the image of his son. Now that's something that was never said of Adam before the fall. He was the perfect image of God, and that's a glorious thing to be. We will have the the uh, the restored perfection of the image of God. But added to that will be the image of Christ that we would not have had had sin never entered the human race. That's the added glory that we have. What does it mean that we will now also share in the image of Christ? It means that we will reflect his glory in a manner that identifies us with him without robbing him of deity. And folks, I'm getting a little ahead of myself because I want to go to John 17, but this is all part of that. I'll just go ahead and, and talk a little bit about this now. But the Father in eternity past made a covenant, a promise to the Son, where he says, I love you so much that I am going to create for you your own image, which you're going to redeem. And that's going to be my gift for you for all eternity. And that's something that's a promise from the Father to the Son. And when we are glorified to the fullest, we are going to reflect the image of Jesus Christ. We aren't going to be simply the restored image of God. We're going to have the added image of Christ to that. What will that look like? I don't know. But I know this. Uh, let me ask you this: What what light does the moon have of its own? Not a bit. Not a bit. We love to behold a beautiful moonlit light, don't we? But where's that light come from? The sun. The moon has no light of its own. If somehow the moon could sit up there on a, a, dark, moon, a dark moonless night, we know that the rock is still up there. We just can't see it because we're not, it's not hitting the angle of the sun. But when the sun is shining in that full moon, we behold the moon in all of its glory, don't we? A glory that is the reflection of the light of the sun. I believe that's how it's going to be with us in Christ. No glory in our own, but the radiance of His forever. Now if that isn't something to give thanks for, I don't know what is. And <laughs> God is committed to your glorification. That's something to be thankful for at Thanksgiving. And the day after Thanksgiving. And six months from now. And three months after that. And every day for the rest of your life. That's what God's committed to doing in our lives. That's what he was committed to do to the church here at Philippi. That's why it's important for us to cooperate in that process, isn't it? Men may abandon a project, but God cannot. Just knowing that God will not quit on you should inspire you to press on now. Don't quit just because hardship comes your way. Don't just quit just because you struggle and sin and experience failure. Don't quit because society is becoming more oppressive or because ISIS is on the march. Don't quit because there is a strength working in you that is beyond yourself. thinking in light of eternity, folks, do you realize this is the only time in all of eternity when God's power can be manifest through your weakness? You're not going to have any weakness in glory. None. You say, I'm weak. I struggle. I struggle. I fail. That's all of us. Don't miss the opportunity right now in eternity for God to manifest His power through that weakness. He can. You know, Paul gained a confidence long ago that God would finish the work that he began and that confidence never wavered. And what impact did that confidence have on others? Look at verse 14. And then most of the brethren, trusting in the Lord because of my imprisonment, have far more courage to speak the word of God without fear. Paul's in Rome in his first imprisonment as he is writing this letter (coughs) Excuse me. building up to this he notes in verse 12 that his imprisonment has become the cause for the greater progress of the gospel verse 13 he notes that it has spread even to the whole praetorian guard and notice the impact that it has here in verse 14 this confidence of Paul's has become the confidence of others having become confident look at it again Guess what word this is? It is the same perfect tense word that Paul used back in verse 6. Paul's confidence became theirs. It was contagious. Spiritual leaders must be men of faith. They must inspire others to follow and to trust God. That's the kind of impact that Paul had. He believed God was going to finish the work that he began at this precious church. He believed in spite of their past humble beginnings. In spite of their weakness and failures. He believed it. He believed in light of their present circumstances. Because they faced opposition and hardship. And he also believed it. Because in light of the father's promise to the son. We've already touched on that. I want to look at it a little bit more. Turn now to John chapter 17. John chapter 17, we're going to go ahead and look now. The reason that Paul is confident about this is because of God's promise to the Son. John 17 helps us to understand that. This is Jesus' high priestly prayer. He prayed the night before his death. It is a model prayer for us. And let us notice how this begins. 1. Jesus spoke these things and lifting lifting up his eyes to heaven he said father the hour has come glorify your son that the son may glorify you even as you gave him authority over all flesh that to all whom you have given him he may give eternal life. Now the Father will glorify the Son for the work that he has accomplished. But notice again what Jesus says about us in verse 2. Even as you gave him authority to all you have given him. He may give eternal life. Not some. All. Remember what Jesus said in John 6.37. All that the Father gives me will come to me. There it is again. Jesus then goes on to say that eternal life is a relationship with him in verse 3, my personal favorite verse in all of the Bible. But then notice what he says in verses 4 through 6. I have glorified you on the earth, having accomplished what you have given me to do. Now, Father, glorify me together with yourself, with the glory which I had with you before the world was. I have manifested your name to the men whom you gave me out of the world. They were yours, and you gave them to me, and they have kept your word. What's Jesus saying? Father, I have completed the work that you have given me to do. Now is the time for my glorification. And in this glorification, note the close connection between Christ's glorification and the body of humanity that the Father gave to him. They're inseparable. His glorification is woven in intricately with the body of humanity that the Father has given to him. Note again in verse 6. I have manifested your name to the men whom you gave me out of the world. They were yours and you gave them to me. We see it again in verse 9. I ask on their behalf. I do not ask on behalf of the world. But of those whom you have given me. For they are yours. Go ahead to verse 24. Father I desire that they also whom you have given me. Be with me where I am. that So that they may see my glory. For you loved me before the foundation of the world. That verse, perhaps more than any other here in this chapter, summarizes the connection between Christ's glory and redeemed humanity more fully than any other. That's why I said earlier this further testifies that the Father's promise to the Son in eternity past, from long ages ago, was to give him a love gift of redeemed humanity that would reflect his image forever. Men seek to glorify themselves perpetually especially in times past through things like having their image on coins or stamps. That's their icon. How much more could the Father glorify the Son than by having an innumerable multitude which he purchased, his image forever. Folks, God is committed to finish in the part and in the whole what he has begun. And one thing that's so precious about this is that somehow, if even one believer was missing from this group, even one, the Father would have been unfaithful to the Son. You know, when we operate with great numbers, we allow for margins of error, don't we? If you're managing a budget in your office of $10 million, and you're only off by a couple hundred dollars, nobody's going to say too much, are they? I mean, that's small of a discrepancy. That's pretty good by man's standards, isn't it? What's really unthinkable is that you'd be able to balance that budget to the penny. You want to know what's unthinkable to God? That he would lose even a penny of what he has promised to the son if I may put it that way therefore with the completeness of the son's obedience the father is all too glad to make sure that he gets every last single fullness of his reward he is going to deliver all that is promised and that is why God must complete what he has begun in you that is why God must complete what he has done collectively in the church. That's what you've been studying in the book of Acts. And that's something to be eternally thankful for. As we come to the Thanksgiving season. So what have we seen today? Just a to recap, we've seen how God is faithful to the end. To complete the work that he has begun in the church. And in the lives of his people. That faithfulness sparked a confidence in Paul that never waned, never wavered. Confidence that God's faithfulness was stronger than their past, their present. Confidence that God would do everything in the future to glorify his son to the highest degree. And even in some ways, this is reflected in the Old Testament. Even though it's fully clarified in the New, we see it even in the Old As Paul wrote Philippians, I can't help but think that he was also thinking about what God wrote to David, through David rather, in Psalm 138 verse 8. The Lord will accomplish what concerns me. Your loving kindness, O Lord, is everlasting. Do not forsake the work of your hands. He won't, my friends. He can't. Trust him. Father, thank you for what we have seen here today. <laughs> thank you th- for what we have seen here through the Apostle Paul. Thank you for what we have seen here in this church. Thank you for what we have seen here. That is a promise to each and every child of yours. Everyone who belongs to Jesus Christ. Father, you are committed to their glorification. It would further glorify your son. in bearing his image reflecting his glory forever. For those here today, Father, who know Christ, may this be an encouragement to us in that whatever circumstances we face, we would submit ourselves to you. We would cooperate with the Holy Spirit. We would seek to manifest your word more and more in our lives that the reality and the image of Christ might bear further and further fruit in our lives even now. For those who don't know Christ, Father, may this be that day where they are drawn into the family, where they are welcomed in the family, because they see that Jesus alone saves and that they place their trust in him. Thank you for this precious body of believers. Thank you for the opportunity to fellowship here today. Thank you for the great work you're doing in all of our lives. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.